Well, good morning, church. It's so good to see everybody here today. And um, it was so good already just to spend time in worship together. When we talk about being a church that is, that is gospel-centered and Christ-exalting, um, the kind of worship that we just had together is, is what defines that. Yet as we go to the text today, we're turning to, we're turning to a text that's a little different than many of the texts that we go to. And, and what I mean by this is that Paul's speech in these verses this morning is really for you, but it's not necessarily about you. For you, but not necessarily about you. And what I mean by this distinction is is that Paul's speech in these verses is not intended really to expand your understanding of the gospel or identify areas of obedience in every Christian's life. Rather, it's a speech that's intended to help the Ephesian elders and the church of every age identify the marks of a faithful minister. That's what this this passage is about. How do we identify the marks of a faithful minister? Or to put it even more plainly, this week's sermon and next week's sermon, we're going to be in a speech for two weeks, have one primary purpose, and that is to help you Assess the faithfulness of your ever imperfect pastors and elders. Yeah. Whether that be in this church or in any other church you attend, it's the purpose of these verses. And, and, that, and that's what I mean when I say the sermon is, is, is for you, but it may not necessarily be about you. That is, unless you're currently serving as an elder, or by God's grace, and I hope it is, you're sensing a call towards eldership in the church, because as we will address later in the sermon, we do need, we do need more elders. So as we come to the speech, I want to be clear that as I come to it, I come to it with a mixed sense of, of fear and love and hope. Fear and love and hope. Fear because I know that everything I do as your pastor, everything that your elders do as your elders is measured in light of these verses. I I come to it in love because I really do want to protect every single person in this church from abusive elders and unfaithful preachers. And hope. Because I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit will use our time in these verses to not only equip you, but to spur on your elders into even greater faithfulness to our Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, fear, love, and hope. And in all this, I want you to see that at the end of the day, when it comes to church leadership, when it comes to the marks of a faithful minister, You and I are not allowed to define the nature of faithful ministry. It's not up to us to define it in our own terms. No, we are called to recognize what faithful ministry is in the light of God's revealed word. We recognize it. So before we dig into the text today, I, I want to take just a moment to set it up in its proper context. I mean, we just skipped over, over quite a bit of little travel log in Paul's journeys. 
Last week, as, as already noted when Asia read the text this morning, that, that last week we had the, the riot in Ephesus, and here we're back in Ephesus again, but Paul's been gone for a number of months. He's been up to Macedonia, he's been up to Greece, he's now back into Asia. He's heading down to Jerusalem. And, and, and this stop in Miletus is not just an easy, quick stop along the way. Paul has to go out of his way to stop in Miletus on his way to get to Jerusalem, and he's in a hurry. He wants to get there by the day of Pentecost. And it's not only not an easy stop for him, but it's not a quick and easy journey for the people in Ephesus to come out to Miletus to meet Paul. But the very difficulty of this connection in Miletus helps us see Paul's love and concern for this church. This isn't just a quick stop for a final potluck. No, Paul called these men together because whether they knew it or not, he's leaving for good. He's been ministering in Ephesus for close to three years. We've seen a phenomenal work of God in the gospel and its expansion through the entire region of Asia from Ephesus. It's amazing what we've seen. And he comes back and his message is, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. And gentlemen, it's your job. You are now responsible for the future health and the gospel impact of this church in Ephesus. You, you can't look to me anymore. You can't expect that I'm going to do it. I'm handing off the baton. It's your turn to lead. You need to know it's coming. And, and so that's what the speech is doing. He's preparing them to lead in his absence, to not have him as a constant backstop. So in the first half of the speech, which we're in today, Paul does this by reminding them of his ministry among them. So that they will recognize and follow his model of faithful ministry. He's, he begins by saying, look, look at what I did. And in doing that, he's making it clear that he's not asking them to do a single thing that he has not done himself. He's not setting a high bar that they can never attain. He's saying, no, this is what I did. Look at what I did and follow the same pattern. The second half of the speech that we're going to hit next week. He goes on to warn them about the difficulties that will occur when he leaves and their express duty to guard the local church. So what are the marks of a faithful minister? What are the marks of a faithful minister that we have in our text today? I want to highlight three things that we see in the text. Three things, three marks of a faithful minister. One, faithful ministers endure every manner of suffering in their service to Christ. Number two, faithful ministers do not shrink back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God. And number three, faithful ministers choose God's plan over their personal comfort. That's going to be three things that we see in the text today about the marks of faithful ministry. With that said, let's go to the text starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus, 
He sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I sat in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. We'll just stop there. Now, how, how does Paul characterize his life among them the whole time? What, what was his life and his ministry characterized by? It was characterized first and foremost in that it was defined by his service to Jesus Christ. What, what's everything that he's doing driven by? His service to Jesus Christ. But what does that really mean? Well, given the fact that Paul uses the Greek word for slave in our English word service, it, it means that he didn't see himself as a religious entrepreneur just trying to expand the impact of his ministry. He, he didn't see himself as an independent gospel contractor. No, he understood that in everything that he did, He's, he's nothing more than a servant carrying out the will of his master. It's not a matter of how big can I make this, how quick can I do it. But understanding that everything that he's doing is in service to Jesus Christ. And I know, I know this, this is kind of hard to fathom in our day and age because we live in this celebrity preacher age, right? Right? How big can they make it? How many books can they put out? And what's Paul saying in this? My ministry was never about me. My ministry was never about me. I wasn't trying to make a name for myself. I wasn't trying to leverage my popularity and my influence for my personal gain. nor was I trying to build my own little kingdom. Everything I did was in service to Jesus Christ. But how could they know? It's one thing to say that you're serving Jesus, right? It's one thing to say that you're serving Jesus, but how could they know? I mean, I mean, throughout the history of the church, we've seen countless slick-talking charlatans claim to be servants of God, Right? Well, if we turn back to the text, Paul points the elders to the unmistakable evidence of his wholesale service to Jesus Christ. Verse 19. What did his service look like? It looked like humility and tears and trials. See, if you're just out for yourself... What are you not going to be very interested in enduring? All three of those things. Because you're going to be trying to figure out how can I overcome those to get my way up to the top? But he actually holds those out as very evidences that he actually is serving Jesus Christ. See, he wants these elders to remember that he was not a fair-weather minister. You know the kind of guy that punches out and, and takes everything personally at the first sign of disagreement? First sign of trouble, first sign of difficulty. 
take it personally, get mad, and punch out and leave. I mean, after all I've done for them. Right? No, Paul was a man who had every reason to throw in the towel. Every reason. Because his obedience led to the most painful experiences. What have we seen through the entire book of Acts? Where has Paul's obedience led him? Hardship. Yet in the middle of the hardship, God has been working. The gospel has been going out. Openly humiliated, attacked, and maligned. Abused and mistreated and beaten. And always in danger from his own people and from the Gentiles to boot. I mean, he doesn't go anywhere where he has holding field advantage. But what do we see in this? What we see in this is that suffering for the sake of Christ, willing suffering for the sake of Christ is one of the clearest signs that an elder or pastor is truly suffering, is truly serving Jesus Christ. It's one of the proofs. And we've got to be honest, like, like this, this is one of the hardest parts of ministry because nobody likes to suffer. Like, like even preaching this, like, I don't like to suffer. I don't. Ask my wife, she'll tell you. I don't like it. I, I, I don't like conflict in the church. I don't like difficulty. No. I don't like it when people leave the church because they're mad. I don't like it. And it hurts. But what are we tempted to do? What are we tempted to do when it happens? And, and it doesn't matter whether you're a pastor, an elder, or you've just been, a, or I wouldn't say just been, that's wrong, or you've been a Sunday school teacher. Or, or you've served in a, another ministry in the church. Maybe, maybe it's serving coffee. Maybe, it, maybe it's greeting. What are we tempted to do when we face difficulty in our service to Christ? We're tempted to lash out at the people who's given us the difficulty and then just plain drop out of service and let somebody else do it. But what are we doing in the moment? We're choosing to serve ourselves instead of Christ. That's what we're choosing to do. And I don't say it lightly. Because, as I just stated, like, like this isn't merely conflict coming from unbelievers outside the church. It, it's stuff that happens inside the church. And, and Paul wasn't immune to it. I mean, I mean, have you ever read First and Second Corinthians? I mean, just read First and Second Corinthians. You'll see how Paul got treated by church that he poured his life out for. Yet in this, we need to bring a qualification. Are there times where it is right and proper and wise for a pastor or an elder or somebody serving in the church to, to, to quit? And the answer is yes. There are times it's right. But the, but the sad reality is that far too many quit far too soon. That's the problem. 
See, see, Paul's reminding us the call to ministry at any level in the church, especially here at elders, but I'm, I'm extending it. The call to ministry at any level of the church is going to come with a cost. It comes with a cost. And, and we need to recognize that. And it's important for us to see because it helps us identify the proper motivation for and focus of our ministry to Jesus Christ. Ministry is not a platform for the minister or the servant in the church to make much of themselves. Nor is it an endeavor to be molded by the fickle opinions of our culture. The minister's motivation and focus in ministry is always his faithful service to Jesus Christ. Number two, it also helps us recognize the fact that faithful ministers can be identified. They can be identified over time, not in the fact that maybe they're drawing thousands of people to their church, and they may be. Okay, this is not a, if you're drawing lots of people, you're not a faithful pastor kind of thing. Not saying that. But faithful ministers can be identified over time by their humble, Christ-centered perseverance. That's how we see the faithfulness. John Calvin puts it this way. The one true test of a Christian servant is that they do not change with the times but remain consistent, always maintaining a straight course. But then that leads us to the question, what does the straight course look like? Okay, he's, he's in service to Christ. He's enduring hardship for the sake of Christ. But what does this straight course look like? We see it in verses 20 through 21. He goes on to say, and this is, this is flowing from his saying, you remember how I lived among you. Number one, as a servant to Christ, the second thing is that I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now, now if you'll just allow me to be just a little bit of a grammar nerd for a minute, um, the grammar in the passage here helps us grasp the true nature of the second mark that we're talking about. Notice in these two, two verses that the primary action, the primary verb, is something that Paul did not do. He didn't do. And that is, he didn't shrink back in fear. He didn't shrink back in fear. But what did this not shrinking back look like? It looked like an unflinching dedication to declare the whole counsel of God. That's, that's whether it's inside the church or it's outside in the community at large. He's committed to, he's committed to proclaim everything. Not hide the hard stuff. Not, not cut off angles of the gospel to make it more acceptable. And in the church, what did it look like? Declaring anything that was profitable. Hear that. What did ministry in the church look like? Declaring anything that was profitable. And that was whether he was teaching in public or from house to house. 
So what do, we, what do we see as his goal in this? Anything that is profitable for them, what does he care about? He cares about the continuing growth and maturity and equipping and doctrinal instruction of these people in the church. He wants them to grow in their maturity to Jesus. In, in, as Christians, he wants them to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And he knows that, that while we come to faith and the gospel is, is absolutely necessary for us to become Christians, that we need to keep pressing in to the entailments of the gospel and our understanding of the gospel and the doctrines that uphold the gospel if we're truly going to grow as Christians. I mean, I mean, this helps us understand Paul's philosophy of ministering the local church. What does he want to do? He wants to disciple believers into maturity. He wants to see them grow. Not just say stagnant, not just flat. He wants to equip them for service. He wants to help them overcome sin. He wants to anchor them in doctrinal truths that define every aspect of their faith. That's what he's doing. He doesn't want them to fall into error. I mean, have you ever noticed when you read one of Paul's epistles that it normally breaks down into two major sections? Almost everyone, two major sections. The first half is almost always doctrine. There's an issue in the church that Paul wants to address, but he doesn't just tell them, do something different, live a different way. He actually begins with doctrine to help them understand their identity in Christ, what God has done. He gives them doctrine, then they can understand what the call to do and obey is actually anchored in. That's how he structures his epistles. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes this very priority in the most confrontational way. Chapter 5, starting in verse 11 in Hebrews, he says this, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you, you ought to be teachers... You ought to be teachers. You need, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need the ABCs again. You need milk, not solid food. For, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He goes on, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, on account of this, what do I want you to do? Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Not, not that we ever run away from the gospel, but the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Well, what's the writer of Hebrews pointing his readers to? He's saying, he's saying that Christian maturity requires that we're taught the entire counsel of God's word, and that is to use Paul's phrasing at the very end in verse 27. The whole counsel of God's will. Not grabbing the bits and pieces we like or the places we want to focus. Theological hobby horses. 
In, in fact, in our, in our church, the very reason why we teach through, often on Sunday morning, a book of the Bible at a time. We teach through a whole book. It is because it forces us to engage topics and questions that we would otherwise probably avoid. We have to take on all sorts of unpopular and difficult things because they come up in the text. It forces us to proclaim the whole counsel of God and at the same time, it actually prepares believers for things ahead in life before they ever run into them. It raises questions that you're not dealing with in the moment. But if this is the case, Paul's focus on proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Did, did, it, did it mean that Paul... Wasn't, wasn't really as worried about pro- pro- proclaiming the gospel. And the very clear answer in the text to that is, no, that is not what Paul thinks. A million times, no. Paul was on fire for the gospel. See, see this is a both and. It's not an either or. Whole counsel of God's will and openly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both of them going inside the church, proclaiming the gospel outside the church, in public. He's never prioritizing the church at the expense of the lost. Not what Paul does. And this is incredibly clear, in that we see his unflinching dedication to the church wasn't, wasn't somehow cutting off his commitment to those who were outside in fact, we see this, this, this passionate testimony of Paul. And I, and I say passionate because here the Greek word testimony in this verse is in the emphatic position. He's not just going through the motions in his gospel proclamation. He cares deeply. He's passionately proclaiming the gospel. He, 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 didn't, he didn't want anyone, whether it be a Jew or Greek, Gentile, anyway, he, he didn't want anyone to not know the gospel. And, he, and he's reminding the, the Ephesian elders. He's reminding these elders and, and the church of every age that evangelism is always a matter of urgency for every church. We, we, we can't just say we're focusing on our maturity and our discipleship and our growth and, and be like, yeah, well, I'm not worried about the evangelism piece. No, they, they, they go necessarily hand in hand. And as we look at the heart of his testimony, what was the heart of the testimony? It was an urgent call for human beings to do two things. What is his message? It's a call to repent and believe. Let, let's, just, let's just talk about these two for a minute. They're terms that Paul gives us. They're very important to the gospel. Repent. What is the call to repent to do? It's a call to turn away. It's, it's a call to turn away from our pride. It's a call to turn away from our self-centeredness. It's a call to turn away from our sense of self-sufficiency because that's where human beings begin. We don't think we have a problem. We think we're doing okay. Well, at least compared to most of the other people around us, we're doing better than them. We think we're doing okay. 
So we've got to turn away from that and openly acknowledge that we've been living in open rebellion against God. We've been living in, in sin against God. We've got to confess that, acknowledge it. It's really sin. Acknowledge we deserve his eternal wrath. We've got to acknowledge that there's a problem and it's here and the problem is me. But see, here's the deal. Because we're all naturally corrupt, and because we are strangers to righteousness and we've all turned away from God, all the repentance and all the moral change in the world is never enough to reconcile us to God. Right? Right, right, right. The call to repentance is important. But there's a reason that our Bible and our New Testament do not end with the ministry of John the Baptist, right? Right? John the Baptist calling everybody to repentance. He's calling them to repentance in preparation for the one who's coming in whom they need to believe. So it's a call to repent. But it has to be accompanied by the call to faith. Because what does faith do? Faith reconciles us to God through the death of Jesus Christ as we come empty-handed to God. Repentance is actually what allows us to come empty-handed. To admit, I have nothing. I, I got nothing when I'm coming to you. And believing God's promise to forgive and restore every person who comes to him by faith. Faith, faith purges our depravity by the power of the Holy Spirit through whom we're empowered to obey and to be slowly transformed into his image. Where does the moral change begin? It doesn't begin at a repentance and our attempt to do better and better and try harder and harder, but it comes as we are given the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live in a way that brings honor and glory to God. But see, if we're never confronted with the true depths of our depravity and our sin and the horror of God's wrath, the call to faith in Jesus Christ, the call for our need for repentance doesn't make any sense. And I just want to say, like, I mean, if you're with us today and you haven't, you haven't responded to God's free offer forgiveness through repentance and faith in Christ especially if you've been coming for a while, I know you've heard the gospel a number of times. If you haven't, my question is, what's holding you back? What's the barrier? What's in the way? I mean, on the one hand, if it's, if it's because there's still aspects you don't understand, there's, there's things that you think that they're just not quite clear. If, 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 if that's what it is, please, Talk to somebody around you. Talk to me. Pastor Ryan, one of the elders, like, like, please talk to somebody. We'd love to help answer your questions. Honest questions are always, they're always welcome. Always welcome. But if it's because you're unwilling, we need to follow up with another question and ask, what in this life is so important it's gonna cost you everything in the next? What's, what's so important about this life? And in this life, that'll cost you everything in the next. 
See, see, that's, that's what's in the balance when it comes to receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 16, 25 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. It seems right, it looks right, feels right. But then we have the promise. Romans ten thirteen. everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you haven't, that's my prayer that today that that would be the day for you. Right now or after the service, come talk, please. This matters. We, we can talk about all the doctrine in the world, but apart from actually coming to faith in Christ, the doctrine is not going to save you. So turning from the call of the gospel to the second half of Paul's address here. The second thing, the third thing actually that we see here is that Paul's faithfulness was not just some dusty artifact from his past life. And, and, and I raise that because I, I think that in, at any point in our Christian life, most Christians can look at a period in time in our life that was marked by faithfulness and by fervency and by fire and by commitment. We have that time. And we can look back at that time and remember that time. And, and, and for some people, that might be decades ago. But Paul's saying here, he's actually going to show us that like, my faithfulness is not just a dusty artifact of the past, but it's a powerful force in my present. It's present, it's today. And we see it starting in verse 22. Now behold... I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I didn't count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And I know now that not one of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. See, in this we see the third mark. Faithful ministers choose God's plan over their personal comfort. See, 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 we see that faithfulness in the present in what? His, in his continuing, humble, obedient service to Jesus Christ no matter the cost. See, see in human terms, Paul has every reason to stay in Asia. Right? His ministry's growing. People are coming to faith in Jesus. The city's being transformed by the power of the gospel. Every reason to stay. 
I mean, it seems insane for him to leave. Just think of what could be accomplished with another year or two years of ministry in Asia. But he's not going to stay. He's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to most likely never return. And not just because he's going off to greener pastures. He's going to go off to a bigger church and have a bigger ministry. Right? He's he's not just trying to climb his way up and, and get the pinnacle ministry to end his life at, at this massive church bigger than anything else he's ever been at. No, he actually knows the road he's on is going to lead to an unknown period of imprisonment and affliction. He sees the road, he knows the road, and he knows it's hard. In fact, we can see the tension. I'm compelled to go to Jerusalem. But I don't know what's going to happen there. Hear that. I I don't know what's going to happen there. Except, except that the Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. I have categories, but I don't have specifics. I have categories, but I don't have time scale. But we've got to ask the question, is this Paul's way of saying, I really don't want to do it, but the Spirit's making me do it? I don't really want to go. You know, you know like, like the Holy Spirit turned him into some kind of robot? I really don't want to do it. Well, I, I don't think so. I don't think so for at least two reasons that we see in the text. Number one, he's already demonstrated his wholesale commitment to Jesus Christ. He, He wants to serve Jesus no matter what the cost. We've already seen that in verse 19. He's a servant of Christ. He's willing to endure whatever that service entails. Number two, it's clear it's clear in his life and ministry, everything that we've seen in the book of Acts, that his steadfast devotion to Christ has completely defined his view of what ministry is and what his life is all about. In fact, we see it in verse 24. I don't count my life of any value or as precious to myself. That is a monumental statement. What does he care about? If only I might finish my course in the ministry that I received. He's received it. It's, it's not something he's, he's taken on himself, he's decided to do. It's something he's received from Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, how do we see this faithfulness in the present? We see it in this unswerving devotion to follow Jesus Christ And it's a joyful devotion. It's a satisfying devotion. He finds his greatest joy in his obedience and it's overflowing into this passion to accomplish every task that Jesus calls him to do. Because Jesus is worth it. See, he's finding his value not in his accomplishments, not in his identity, 
but in his faithful service to Jesus Christ. And he doesn't see the pain of that ministry as a reason that would keep him from pursuing it. Paul's counted the cost. He's counted the cost. But when he compares it to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and fulfilling his calling to Christ, he freely embraces the Spirit's call to Jerusalem. In light of this, I think, I think Paul's telling the Ephesian elders, yes. From the outside, this trip to Jerusalem looks reckless. It looks insane. And it looks foolish. But I cannot do anything else. I can't take another step in any other direction without being in direct rebellion against my master, Jesus Christ. That's the compulsion. He knows to go any other way is disobedience. The Spirit's drawing him. He's making it clear. And to take any other path would be to say, God, I don't care what you're telling me to do. I am not going to follow you. That's what he wants the elders to see. He could run, but if he did, he'd be throwing away everything that he held dear and abandoning the two things that he held most precious in his life. His service to Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling us about his mindset in ministry. And I want us to see this. Because it means that it's possible for you and me to ignore God's calling to serve as an elder or deacon. If we recognize what Paul's really saying here, that to do anything else is disobedience. And I'm compelled no matter what the cost because I want to obey and, and follow my God. He's saying like any other, any other avenue is disobedience that, that if we are in the same position 2,000 years later sensing God's call towards ministry in every av- any other avenue to do any other thing is, is to walk in disobedience. And it happens, I think, more than we'd like to admit in the church because we are prone to give acceptable Christian excuses to avoid the very things that God calls us into. They're Christian excuses. There are other areas of obedience that we're called to. Right? We have any number of areas of obedience. But we can't substitute one for another. Focusing on eldership, it always comes with a cost. I mean, any elder I've ever talked to, 
people we've talked to about possible service as an elder. We never hide that. It always comes with a cost. We don't know, thing is we don't know what the cost is going to be. But on the other hand, church, have you ever considered the hidden cost of somebody dismissing their calling? Do we ever think in those terms? What's the hidden cost of dismissing a calling? I think as we look at this text and we look at Paul's, Paul's message to these, these men, I think it's nothing less than the long-term stability, health, and gospel impact of the local church. It, it, it's not just filling leader rosters, putting people in a position where they can sit around a table and talk for hours. Hours, right, Kevin? Okay. <laughs> No, it's the it's long-term health and stability and gospel impact of the church. I mean, what happens when we have a lack of leadership in the church? It leads to a church that actually starts sliding into decline. Ever-increasing patterns of isolationism and, frankly, consumerism. Looking for everybody else to do the things that need to be accomplished. See, I want you to see this because in these verses... The way Luke has included this speech at this stage of Paul's journeys, this is really the end of everything in the book of Acts for his public ministry. And in many ways it functions as a message to every church in every stage of the history of the church. It prepares and equips the church of every age for the difficulties of ministry by providing them with with objective criteria to gauge the faithfulness of their pastors and elders. It calls people into the need. It shows them what needs to be done. And at the same time, it grants the criteria. It says, this is what we're looking for. We're looking for faithful ministers to endure suffering in their service to Christ. We're looking for faithful ministers who fearlessly proclaim the whole counsel of God. We're looking for faithful ministers who choose God's plan over their personal comfort. And I don't say that lightly. But at the same time, I don't want to say it in a way where it makes the bar so high that everybody goes, I could never do that because this bar is not unattainable. And it's not overly high. Friends, this is the way. This is the way that faithful ministers serve the church. It's what you should expect from your elders in the church and for those who are pursuing eldership, and I hope that some are, sensing the call to understand what it entails. In fact, as we close... We could simply close by focusing on your need to, to look at this list and look at your elders and look at me. We could certainly try to use this list and then start looking at like the multiple ways that uh, the culture around us in the, in the, in the American church is, is failing to uphold these. But I just want to close with a question. And it's this, what, what might it look like if we had an ever-growing group of faithful elders leading and shepherding and teaching our church? What would it look like here if we had an ever-growing group? 
of men like this. Imperfect men. Men who are busy with many things in their lives. But they see the need and they start pursuing God's call, whether or not they felt like they're fully equipped in the moment. See, that's the thing is, you don't, you don't, you don't have to feel fully equipped. I mean, you, you can actually come and talk and be like, hey, I, I'd like to pursue this, but I feel like there's some areas of deficiency in my life that I need to grow in. I had somebody do that a while back. We spent close to a year working together, helping them grow in some areas so they could, they could step into service. I'd love to do that. See, the truth of the matter is, basically none of us are ready to step in without some kind of help and preparation. Like, like, nobody's, like, instantly ready. And it's okay to acknowledge that. So I just want to say, like, if, if you're sensing or have sensed the call towards eldership, talk to me. You have a little clearer view of what it's about after today. Nothing to be hidden. I'd, I'd love to spend some time to help you discern that call. Maybe walk down the path in equipping. Because when it comes down to it, if we are going to have a long-term impact as a church that, that outlives whatever time of ministry I have here, and I'm not saying that like I'm leaving, at least that I know of, <laughs> faithful elders are the key to a healthy church that fulfills its gospel calling in the world. And it's the only way that we're going to continue doing what God has called us to do. Let's close in a word of prayer.